Today we learn from the black giant of a professor, Walter E. Williams. The topics are Jim Crow, reparations, and white slavery. That's next. Welcome to Culture Shift, the Barry Ferris Show. We are living in an American culture that has shifted from tolerant to cancel culture, from decent to rude, from optimistic to cynical, and from relatively safe to increasingly violent. But it's not too late. I hope to equip you with a historical framework applied to current events so you can lead and get America back on track for good. Hey, welcome back to the Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Today, we continue to learn from another great black man. Two episodes ago, we learned from Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas that created equal is far superior to critical theory. Last week, we learned from Thomas Sowell that slavery was worldwide, that father desertions explained the ghetto, and that white liberals caused and deepened the problem. This week, we look at the real history of Jim Crow, reparations, and white slavery guided by the exhortations from Walter Williams. Walter Williams was a giant intellectually and physically. He was six foot five inches tall. He was, after all, a cousin of an NBA superstar player. Though he enjoyed basketball and long bike rides, he was a scholar and teacher. He wrote 10 books, hundreds of articles, scholarly journal articles, and more than a thousand weekly columns. He gave hundreds of lectures around the world. You could find him on TV and radio up until his passing last December. Walter, like Clarence Thomas and Thomas Sowell, had no involved father. Yet, like both of those guys, he promulgates a strong family and an engaged father as the answer to many problems. Williams was married to his sweetheart wife until her death in 2007. Like Clarence Thomas and Thomas Sowell, Walter Williams also started out sympathetic to Malcolm X. He excelled in the service, and he fought for equal treatment, and he even won a lawsuit against a superior officer. Walter was a fearless man. His assumptions on economics and people were challenged at UCLA, and he became a conservative just based on the facts. He would later speak and write and teach that it was better for blacks and everyone to simply enjoy equal treatment under the law. He taught at Temple Stanford and George Mason University. All told, he taught students for 47 years. One of his famous discussions is related to white guilt and white slaves. He even produced a proclamation of amnesty and pardon granted to all persons of European descent. It's funny and serious at the same time. Basically, he posted this proclamation on his website to forgive all whites, whether they or their ancestors were involved or not in the slave trade, and he concludes his pardon with, therefore, from this day forward, Americans of European ancestry can stand straight and proud, knowing they are without guilt and thus obliged not to act like damn fools in relationships with their fellow Americans of African ancestry. If you look at his other writings and listen to his lectures, what he's really saying, in other words, is don't treat blacks in a condescending way. He signs this pardon, Walter E. Williams, gracious and generous grantor. He was a fun guy, and he makes the point. My personal experience at the Magnet High School Booker T. Washington proved out Walter Williams' academic argument. It was in Tulsa, and we knew all about the Tulsa massacre, but none of our parents were even alive at the time. We enjoyed normal, healthy, and positive relationships across the board. 
You know, Walter Williams covered a wide range of race discussion, including setting the record straight on Jim Crow laws. These laws were implemented by the Democrats from the South to continue discriminating against blacks after they lost the Civil War. Jim Crow legislation was horrible. It was against everything the Declaration of Independence declared. Jim Crow laws were a system of state-enforced laws that relegated blacks to inferior status, and it was often violent. At least 3,500 blacks were lynched during the Jim Crow years. But all those laws were put in place by Democrats, the party of the white liberals. They ruled the South at the time. The Ku Klux Klan was a paramilitary wing of the Democratic Party. These horrible attitudes were not limited to state legislators. Democrat presidents had the same lack of respect for blacks. You know, Woodrow Wilson segregated the entire federal service, the whole federal civil service. FDR appointed a member of the KKK to the Supreme Court. John F. Kennedy was apathetic towards civil rights legislation. Before LBJ took up the cause of civil rights as president for political reasons, he actually blocked the GOP 1956 civil rights bill when he was the majority leader of the Senate. And when he finally took up the bill, uh, more Republicans than Democrats voted for the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Before that historic signing, which he was under pressure to do, GOP President Eisenhower introduced the 1957 Civil Rights Act, but Democrat LBJ gutted it. Democratic senators filibustered the GOP Civil Rights Act of 1960. But this Democrat opposition to the Republican argument that you should fully embrace the black community didn't end in the 60s. Robert Byrd was a member of the KKK, and he became the Democratic leader in the Senate in the 1980s. We could elaborate in detail and go on and on about how Democrats, including the current Democrat president, was cozy with high-ranking members or past members themselves of the KKK. But let's go back to the Founding Fathers. Much has been said by the proponents of critical race theory about how evil the Founding Fathers were, and since they owned slaves, none of their documents should be recognized. But Walter Williams says that's not a fair view. He argues that though slavery is one of the most horrible injustices, the Union was almost not formed because of the moral dilemma at our 1987 Constitutional Convention. He says, let's look at some of the debate. George Washington, in a letter to Pennsylvania delegate Robert Morris, wrote, There's not a man living who wishes more sincerely than I do to see a plan adopted for the abolition of slavery. In a constitutional convention speech, James Madison argued against slavery. In James Madison's record of the convention, he wrote, The convention thought it was wrong to admit in the Constitution the idea that there could be property in men. John Jay said, it's much to be wished that slavery may be abolished, the honor of the states as well as justice and humanity, in my opinion, loudly call upon them to emancipate these unhappy people, to contend for our own liberty, and to deny that blessing to others involves an inconsistency not to be excused. Patrick Henry said, I believe a time will come when an opportunity will be offered to abolish this lamentable evil. Walter Williams taught at George Mason University for four decades, and he provides a quote of the university's namesake. Founding father George Mason said, The augmentation of slaves weakens the states, and such a trade is diabolical in itself and disgraceful to mankind. 
So Walter Williams uses these quotes and reminds his students that there was an attempt by many of the founders to eliminate slavery out the gate. He certainly does not justify slavery. He's just bluntly looking at the facts of the history at the time. There was genuine desire by many founders to abolish it, to not include it in any form in the American way of life. It just wasn't consistent with, what, with who we are. But the South had too much power and could foil the whole union. In Walter Williams' view, it came down to accepting an unholy political compromise or being left with no union at all. Walter Williams believed that modern scholars need to be more honest. He invited them to look through the lens of history in context. Walter Williams' conclusion of why people use slavery to trash the founders is, and I quote him, they have a contempt for our constitutional guarantees of liberty. Slavery is merely a convenient moral posturing tool they use in their attempts to reduce respect for our constitution. Walter Williams was an economist, but he talked a lot about race. He also pointed to the worldwide history of slavery, describing that, and this is a quote, slavery was common among ancient peoples, Egyptians, Babylonians, Assyrians, Hittites, Greeks, Persians, Armenians, and many others. He also discussed uh, the concept of reparations. Slavery was a horrible violation of human rights, but if we're going to provide reparations for any one descendant of transatlantic slave trade, we must do that for all, he argued. And that includes some really difficult math. Do you start with the original number of slaves shipped out of Africa or the net number of slaves who survived the trip or their descendants? If you're going to be a cold, rational judge, you probably start with the net number of slaves that are imported. We have records for that. The embarkment records from the ports of Sengambia and Sierra Leone and Windward Coast and the Gold Coast and the Bight of Benin and the Bight of Biafra and the West Central of Africa were filed away. The African sellers would charge partly on that basis. It's about 12 million. Yet part of the deal structure was for the slaves to survive the trip. And sadly, or some say mercifully, about 16.9% did not survive the trip. According to Emory University, we have disembarkation records of 10.7 million who survived the voyage. Some maps show a slightly different number here or there, but those are usually explainable by using a different timestamp on the beginning or the end of the slave trade. Of those 10.7 million, 389,000 landed in the United States, most in Georgia and the Carolinas and Chesapeake Bay. That represents 3.6% of the total slaves arriving in North and South America and the West Indies, the islands. More than double that, 779,000 went to Cuba, 1,020,000 went to Jamaica, 774,000 to the Dominican Republic, and another 1,846,000 spread across Puerto Rico, the British Caribbean, the Dutch Caribbean, the Spanish Caribbean, St. Kitts, Barbados, Nevis, and the other islands that we call the West Indies as a group. And as you make your way along the north and east rim of South America, the British, Dutch, and French controlled territory in Amazonia imported another 542,000. Pernambuco is, uh, is in the northeast part of Brazil, and it imported 818,000. Bahia in central Brazil imported 1,568,000, and southeast Brazil imported 2,281,000. Another 98,000 blacks from Africa went to the far southern part of South America. The transatlantic slave trade was horrible. The treatment of these people was inhumane. It should never have happened. It should have ended sooner when it was happening. But it's important to note that the U.S. was not the only sinner. 
In total, 3.6% went to North America, 43.2% to the islands, and 53.2% to the mainland of South America. That just looks at the slaves that came to North and South America from Africa. But according to the Purdue Black Cultural Center, there were also 2,550,000 black slaves that went from Africa to the North part of Africa and the Middle East, or more than six and a half times as many went there than went to North America. So returning to the calculation of reparations, you can see how it gets complicated. And Walter Williams is saying, look, it's going to be hard to do this in a just manner. If you're going after the culprits, you have to go after all the culprits. And that's the people who captured all the millions of Africans before selling them. He says that means you've got to have compensation that would have to be paid by Africans and Arabs who captured and sold slaves to Europeans in addition to the people who bought and used slaves. Since slaves and slave traders and owners are no longer with us, compensation, and I'm quoting him now, compensation is beyond our reach and it's a matter that will have to be settled in hell or heaven. Walter Williams is black. He hates slavery, but analytically and rationally, he puts the transatlantic slave trade and all slave trade in a context of world history. He says, and I'm quoting, it was only during the 17th century that the Atlantic slave trade began with European assisted by Arabs and Africans. He points out that slavery was always horrible, but that it started way before the transatlantic tragedy. He says large numbers of Christians were enslaved during the Ottoman Wars in Europe. White slaves were common in Europe from the Dark Ages to the Middle Ages. That really is true, by the way. But you never hear about Christian white slaves. Walter Williams thinks we should have some intellectual curiosity about it to balance our view and any action plan we might concoct as a result. Robert Davis is a professor of history at The Ohio State University, and he wrote a scholarly book in 2003 on the topic. The title is Christian Slaves, Muslim Masters, White Slavery in the Mediterranean, the Barbary Coast, and Italy from 1500 to 1800. That's a big top, uh, title, and the title kind of says it all. Like it says, it just taps into a whole bunch of historical sources, and it looks at the systematic enslavement of white Christian Europeans. It was not a minor phenomenon, though. Altogether, over a million white people were slaves. In the first 150 years, from 1500 to 1650, there were more white Christians captured and shipped to the northern coastline of Africa, the Barbary Coast, than at the same time were shipped from Africa to the Americas. So how did the people from Europe get captured in the first place? Well, for anyone who traveled in the Mediterranean Sea, you were at risk of the pirates ramming your ship and taking everyone aboard. But you also weren't safe walking on the beach in southern France or Spain or Portugal or Italy. They had roaming pirates that would come and snatch any vulnerable white person they could find. Nearly all Christians were white, at the, or nearly all the white people they found were Christians. These Muslim pir pirates would also raid entire seaside villages. They captured men, women, and children. Shipping was how many merchants traded goods. And they had a whole bunch of different sized wooden ships. And as a general rule, you would need to avoid pirates. Pirates would normally just rob you of your merchandise. These pirates found that it was much more profitable to steal you. The French, English, and Spaniards lost thousands of ships during this time period. The pirates would bring the slaves to the North African Ottoman provinces or the independent state of Morocco. 
European Christian slaves were worked hard and lethally in quarries, in heavy construction, and humiliatingly rowing pirate ships in the galleys below. No workers' compensation insurance for you, no safety programs. They were just treated inhumanely, underfed, beaten, tortured, and often dying painful deaths. Algiers, Tunis, and Morocco were the primary markets. Algiers was right in the center of that North African coast. It's perfectly positioned for the pirates to drop off their white slave merchandise, and the slaves would go to the highest bidder. Davis calls this the invisible slavery of European Christians, and he believes it deserves more attention from scholars. If you lived around the Mediterranean in the 16th to the 18th centuries and you were white and a Christian, you lived in constant fear of the threat of being captured and enslaved. Another window into this white slavery is by a world-renowned historian, Giles Milton. He publishes a book in 2005 titled White Gold, The Extraordinary Story of Thomas Pello and Islam's One Million White Slaves. It's thoroughly sourced. This details the slave trade through the life of a Cornish cabin boy named Thomas Pello. He was captured by the pirates, and he was sold to this megalomaniac Islamic sultan of Morocco. His name was Moulay Ismail. This, this sultan was building a monstrous palace from 100% white Christian slave labor. Pello, this captured slave, wasn't really that devout of a Christian, just kind of a Christian by name, and he made a decision to feign conversion to Islam. He thought it'd be a much safer bet, and he was right. As a result, he was treated relatively well. He was kind of smart, too, so he survived and later escaped to tell his story. What he observed is intense. On the one hand, Pello gets to see the splendor of the imperial court. On the other, he witnesses the daily terror of the ruthless regime. The historian, Milton, provides extensive research and scholastic support for every detail, and the details are gruesome. Milton doesn't overstate things. He doesn't get melodramatic. He doesn't go maudlin. He just tells it like it is. But that's often descriptive of horrendous cruelty and abuse. The fortresses and cities are beautiful, and they were all built from white slave labor. This slavery was based on hatred of Christians, it required conversion to Islam or you'd be put on display to suffer excruciating torture, often to your death. This system, though, was organized. You had armed pirates. They would take advantage of these wooden sail ships of all sizes, manned by business types, mostly unarmed traders, making their way through the Mediterranean. The Muslims along the North African coast made it openly legal to buy and sell any white slave as long as he or she was a Christian. Yet there was an insanely inefficient component as well. The Islamic regions treated the white slaves so severely that the ones that were not arbitrarily murdered died of starvation and disease. So they were in the middle of these massive construction projects that are fueled by white slaves, and they kept killing off about 20,000 of their labor per year. That pointless brutality required even more raids to resupply their labor. These white slaves were often beheaded for entertainment's sake. The sultan himself in Morocco thought it was funny to cut off someone's head. And he also liked the fact that it would keep the fear level high as he was building this huge city of palaces, Meknes Talafelet. This was this huge Moroccan palace. 
the Morocco Sultan was crazy. He forced his wives to pull him around in his chariot, even though he could afford all kinds of horses. And then he would behead a servant on a whim. For example, he beheaded a slave who had just helped him mount the saddle of his horse. Pello, the slave, was a slave for 23 years, advancing all the way to a position which allowed him for his escape. And I'm going to make you read the book to find out how he did that. When he returned home to England, his family barely recognized him. A balanced review of history would condemn all slavery. For example, while this treachery against whites was happening during Pelo's time, the transatlantic horror was in full swing, sending slaves to North and South America. Over 90% of that was to the benefit of the Europeans and the Brits in their islands and their territories, all of their imperialism. But what's wild is the lack of response by those governments of the home countries during this white slavery in that North African coast. The United Kingdom even removed all of their documented white slavery from their history books. You want to know why? Well, during this period, many of those slaves were able to get letters off to the United Kingdom and to their government, pleading for help. Though sometimes a brave friar would make his way over kind of as a missionary with money and he'd buy back a Christian slave, the government ignored the issue. White European people were forcibly taken from their homes and churches in broad daylight and taken into slavery by Muslims. Slaves were brought in by the batch, suffered brutality, often tortured until they renounced their Christian faith or died. This book's very readable, especially as history books go. You want to find out how Pello escapes, so you keep reading. It's a cliffhanger. Escape. This should be required reading of all high school core curriculum. Interesting fact. This slave trade is linked to the founding of our Navy. After the U.S. won the Revolutionary War, it lost protection from the British Navy for its merchant ships. As such, the U.S. actually paid tribute, this type of honor to these horrible leaders of these horrible regimes, and an entry tax of sorts to get into the Mediterranean to keep the Americans from being enslaved or held for ransom when they entered the Mediterranean to trade. Thomas Jefferson and John Adams were contemplating how to figure this out. They didn't want to pay the tribute, but they felt they had no choice until they could build a navy of their own. Everyone knew about the Islamic slave masters. This is one of the many horrible slave stories out there. But in this particular case, the North African masters brutally enslaved white Europeans for over a 300-year period, and it's over a million of them. And the ordeal was actually the impetus for the young American government to found the Navy. Finally, we look at an untold story of white slaves in the United States. This is out of a 2007 book that details this history. It's called White Cargo, The Forgotten History of Britain's White Slaves in America. This was written by London authors, Don Jordan and Michael Walsh. They detail how over 300,000 white people were shipped to America in the 1600s through the 1700s. They were from England, Ireland, and Scotland. The authors say that the supply of these people was made up of beggars, prostitutes, dissidents, and convicts. Apparently, the way the story goes, they just would round them up, put them on the ship, and send them out. They were sent to work in the tobacco fields for the most part. The authors draw on letters where the slave is crying for help in personal diaries and court and government archives. For example, they provide excerpts from a will stating how 
the white servants should be inherited by the children along with the furniture in the house. So at least according to that guy, he thought of them as slaves. According to the authors, this slavery spanned 170 years. They start the whole book with the recent discovery of a 17th century skeleton of a young European man who died young of injuries that are very consistent with the hard labor that would come from slavery. And since his body was not buried, but in a hole under a pile of household waste near Annapolis, the presumption is that he was a white slave. So many historians say these were mostly indentured servants, not really slaves, who agreed to work for free in exchange for something of value in the future. But the authors of this book argue, no, most of these guys died in a few years before they could realize any land or freedom. And they also argue that any person who is bought and sold, chained and abused is a slave. The authors express that they have no wish to play down the horrors of black slave trade. They just want to be true to all slave history. And that's how Walter Williams was. Walter Williams says that slavery was horrible, uh, but that reparations are impossible in a fair and just way, and that when looking at the despicable practice as a worldwide problem over many, many thousands of years of human history that was overcome by moral outrage by Christians, that it should not be used as an alibi to withdraw from achievement or withdraw from positive relationships today. He points to the general prosperity of black Americans. If they were a nation, their gross domestic product would be among the 20 wealthiest nations in the world, surpassing many in Africa. He points to exceptional achievements by black leaders, athletes, and entertainers, and the fame of so many, and some who are billionaires. He says that in 1865, Neither a slave nor a slave owner would have believed that such progress would be possible in less than a century and a half, if ever. That's his quote. His definition of the real problem is, and I quote him again, the undeniable truth is that neither slavery nor Jim Crow nor the harshest racism has decimated the black family the way the welfare state has. He reaches the same conclusion as Thomas Sowell. The number one problem is the weak family structure, which was caused and exacerbated and encouraged by the welfare state of the 1960s and forward. Walter Williams says, and I'm quoting him, in 1960, just 22% of black children were raised in single-parent families. 50 years later, more than 70% of black children were raised in single-parent families. According to the 1938 Encyclopedia of Social Sciences, in 1938, and I'm quoting him, 11% of black children were born to unwed mothers, just 11%. Today, over 75% are born to unwed mothers. That can't be a legacy of slavery. All blacks were poor originally, but now 30% are poor. Only 8% of black married couple families live in poverty. If you're married and you're black, you're probably not poor. It's the welfare state that decimated the black family, he concludes. And it's time we reintroduce Walter Williams' teaching into high schools and universities across the nation. It will defeat unsubstantiated theories, and equip people to succeed. And I'm all for your success. And that depends on your freedom. God bless. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. 
Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Ferris Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryferrisshow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Ferris Show on YouTube. See you next time.